Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I'm a board-certified OBGYN and a fertility doctor. My favorite episodes are when I answer your questions, and today is fertility Q&A. If you have burning fertility questions that you just can't get the answer to, and you want an expert to help you understand your body and your fertility more, feel free to go ahead and call the voicemail, 657-229-3672. Leave a voicemail with your question, and then you might hear it on one of these episodes. A few other housekeeping items before we dive in. Every week on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, I will answer some of your questions as well. And most episodes that aren't Q&A episodes, we will answer for fertility's sake at the end of the episode. These questions are pulled right from Instagram. So question box, put your question in, some answered on Instagram, some here on the podcast at the end of the episodes and some in the newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com newsletter and just stay up to date on my favorite things and recipes, updates. You'll also hear answers to your fertility questions and fertility in the news where you'll get my hot take on some fertility topic that is trending. Without further ado, let's go ahead and dive in to your questions. Hi, Natalie. First, I just want to say thank you so much for your podcast. I learn so much every episode. My question is about when to remove an IUD. I have an extensive history of hypothalamic amenorrhea, and I also am an athlete, so I haven't gotten my period in the past for months, if not years at a time. I don't get a period with the Kyulina IUD, which does concern me, but I have been told it's normal. I do want to get pregnant within the next year, and I'm thinking about removing my IUD sooner than later, just so I can ensure my periods are normal. Do you have any other advice for me? Thank you so much. This is a good question. And one thing about IUDs with progesterone is they don't always prevent you from ovulating. So how a progesterone IUD works very much like the progesterone pill is that it really prevents pregnancy by thinning out the uterine lining. And that's why we haven't had a period and changing the cervical mucus. But sometimes it does impact ovulation. And it often is really hard to know what's happening when you're amenorrheic or don't have a period on the IUD and you remove it. If you do not have a period, is it lack of ovulation or is it not having a thick enough lining? Because it can be hard to differentiate between these, I do recommend that if you have an IUD, you remove it before you want to get pregnant. So typically I say about three to six months ahead of time. And if you're amenorrheic, meaning no period, 
I would really favor removing it closer to six months beforehand. That way you give your body time to build back a lining and to see if you ovulate. That really may take a few ovulatory cycles or a few cycles of your body seeing estrogen alone and no progesterone to make a lining thick enough to actually have a bleed. But if you've removed it and you have zero period at all, and you're really approaching longer than that three to four month interval, I would recommend that you go see somebody so that you can get a better idea of what is happening. Hi, Dr. Crawford. I'm a longtime listener and your YouTube videos and podcasts have been super helpful in my fertility journey. So I just froze 17 eggs and since I'm not planning on using them in the next one to two years, my clinic wants me to pick a long-term storage facility to send them to. My insurance has four in-network ones. I don't know which one to pick. Their websites all say pretty much the same thing and the few reviews out there are very location specific. So I wanted to know what your thoughts are for picking a storage facility. And when I pick a facility to work with, would all of my eggs go to a single location or will they split the eggs and send them to different locations for more redundancy? I look forward to hearing from you. This is a really good question and we're seeing this more and more in patients who are not utilizing their gametes in one way or another because clinics often have limited space and the old-fashioned storage systems really are clunky and take up a lot of space. So it can save you money and it can be easier for the clinic if you get those samples off-site. Typically, yes, all of your eggs are going to be sent there. People freeze different ways and this has changed over time. Your samples are frozen on what we call straws. So imagine a little glass tube. For egg freezing, most people put two eggs per straw. And for embryos, it's one embryo per straw. So if you have two eggs per straw, all of your eggs, I like to think about it, all your straws are in a little locker, a little area that belongs to you. And so they'll all be sent together wherever you choose to send them. Now, I usually say you want to send them to a place that is going to communicate well with you because you're going to need to get them out. You want to make sure they've got good safety protocols in place. Most long-term places are putting this on their website or have somebody you can talk to about it. How are the eggs getting from point A to point B? Who is coordinating that? And then when you want to go use them, how are you going to be able to get them? Most clinics do have a favorite place or somewhere that they work with the most. So even though you've got a standard response from your clinic, Somebody else who's listening to this might ask, if I want to send these to long-term storage, where should I send them or how should I do it? And some clinics have their own long-term storage. So that's one thing that different places and something that we are about to start offering so that you don't have to be the one to initiate or to research this. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. 
That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash AAW and click get started. Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. Hi, Dr. Crawford. I was just listening to your podcast, and it's really interesting and really wonderful. I'm actually a mom of a one-year-old. I'm 33 and a half and eventually wanting to have a second, but don't feel like I'm in any rush to do so. However, I know that time is a factor. I guess my wondering or my concern is, you know, I, I had a miscarriage before having my son, my rainbow baby, very unexpectedly had this you know, miscarriage, and then thankfully got pregnant about four months later with my son. But I have heard that having a miscarriage can make it more likely for you to have another one. Is that correct? And also, I guess my other question is, you know, I listened to one of your other podcasts about how, you know, the time frame of you having a child at 35, let's say, the likelihood of you having a successful full-term pregnancy increases if you've already had a live birth. So I just wanted to know a little bit more, more about that, I guess. So yeah, thanks so much. Well, I'm so sorry that you've had pregnancy loss, and I'm so thankful that you're able to have your rainbow baby. There's a couple of important statistics and just understanding what we mean when we talk about some of this. A lot of this data comes, one, from two different cohort studies. Cohort studies are where you observe a population and maybe you test certain things if it's prospective, but you have no actual intervention. So in one cohort study called the Early Pregnancy Law Study, now this is landmark study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, but it's old, but it had thousands of patients. And what they looked at was urinary samples every single day while people were trying to get pregnant. And they were using a highly sensitive HCG test and often detecting a pregnancy before somebody even knew they were pregnant. In people who had an undetected pregnancy loss, well, one, the prevalence of undetected loss was rather quite high. But two, if you did have that, you were more likely to get pregnant in a proximate cycle. And what we really mean to think by this is that there's some functionality that has already been proven because egg and sperm were able to meet in the body. If we view that a certain subset of patients with infertility have fertilization issues, and I always think this falls under the unexplained infertility category, those are never going to have a positive pregnancy test or miscarry because there's an issue with egg and sperm meeting and there's an issue where it can't implant. 
So if you've had that loss, you've had that positive test, we know that certain parts of this reproductive system work, and ultimately that is making it more likely that you'll get pregnant again in the future and in that next cycle. And the other big study looking at pregnancy-related data was the time-to-conceive cohort. This study I did all of my fellowship research in, so I know it very well. My fellowship mentor, Ann Steiner, who is landmark in our field when it comes to studying natural fertility, was the primary investigator on this. And looking at people who were trying to get pregnant and just observing their menstrual cycle characteristics and the natural prevalence of their fecundability or their probability of pregnancy per month. In this study, getting accurate numbers from modern day populations about the change in your chance of getting pregnant as you get older, but there was definitely a disparity or a difference in the group that was proven to be fertile or who has had a child before. So when we look at some of these numbers, we actually see a difference. So basic numbers, if you are 36 to 37 and you've never had a child, your chance of having a pregnancy per month is 12%. But if you've had a previous child, it's 16%. And if you're 38 to 39, it's 5% if you've never had a child and it's 17% per month if you have. And if you're 40 to 41, it's 3% if you've never had a child, and it's 10% if you have. It's not that having a pregnancy makes you more fertile. It is that if you have had a pregnancy, it shows that certain parts of the reproductive system work that otherwise you do not know. And the miscarriage data is largely the same, meaning you have had fertilization, There's some thought about could there be activation of the endometrium or something in that realm, and maybe that's part of it from a miscarriage specifically when you look at cycle to cycle. I did another study in the time to conceive population looking at the luteal phase because y'all know I love the luteal phase, and looking at the length of the luteal phase as one parameter, but then also bleeding if you're in the luteal phase and what that meant. Really trying to categorize the impact an issue in your luteal phase or a luteal phase defect may have on your natural fertility. Well, not surprisingly, if you have bleeding in your luteal phase, you are extremely less likely to get pregnant in that cycle. However, you're more likely to get pregnant in the secondary cycle, the cycle immediately following it. So think about that. You have bleeding in one cycle and you have a lower chance of getting pregnant that month. But why does that luteal bleeding improve your chances the next month? Our hypothesis and the only thing that really makes sense to me is potentially if that bleeding was a very early pregnancy loss. Because just like the early pregnancy loss data, those people were more likely to get pregnant in the future. And so if that bleeding was potentially an early loss or an early implantation that never worked itself out, then that would make sense why those people had a statistically higher chance of getting pregnant in the month following that random luteal bleeding. So just interesting stuff. I always just take it though as this is showing us that certain parts work and definitely should tell you that if you have a loss or a miscarriage, you should keep trying to get pregnant unless for some reason your doctor has told you that you should not. Hi, Dr. Crawford. My name's Melissa. My wife and I are starting IVF. And we don't have any known fertility issues, neither does our sperm donor. It's a known donor to us. Our doctor says they only do ICSI here, which has me concerned because I'm also in healthcare. So I read up as much as I can about this, and I was thinking we could maybe do conventional IVF. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts are on conventional versus ICSI and the option of such for a couple without any fertility issues. Thank you. Bye. This is a good question, and I actually see a lot of information online that I don't 
always particularly agree with on this, and I think it leaves room for discussion. In conventional fertilization, I want you to imagine that there is a petri dish and your eggs are in it and somebody puts sperm on it and then they cover it and put it in the incubator overnight. In ICSI, an egg is opened with a little laser, a hole in the zona pellucida or the shell of the egg is created, a sperm is selected and inserted into the cytoplasm of the egg. Now, if you have male factor, ICSI for sure. Even and specifically like morphology issues, motility issues, if you have unexplained, I like to do ICSI. If you're doing genetic testing, I like to do ICSI. If you have never had a pregnancy before, I like to do ICSI because if you've never had egg and sperm meat in your body, how do we know that there's not a fertilization issue and it has happened doing conventional fertilization where you pull the eggs out of the dish and now you see you don't have very many or you have so few fertilized. And it's really heartbreaking at that stage of the game to learn that data. Like everything, IVF has advanced a lot over the years, meaning when a new technology is first introduced, we are always going to be more hesitant to it than something that is very standard and has more data. I do ICSI in 90 plus percent of my patients, and I would not be doing something if I really believed there were long-term consequences from that procedure. But y'all, IVF is expensive and finding out you had really poor or under fertilization when potentially could have been very different by doing ICSI is heartbreaking. If we think about it, what are the risks of ICSI? One, eggs can get damaged with ICSI. Not going to happen really anymore because that's such a standard procedure and embryologists are trained so well. It's not a new thing anymore. Second, you would hear people quote that there was a higher risk of a sex chromosome abnormality, which would be about 0.8%, which is more than you would see on spontaneous conception. That being said, if you are also doing genetic testing, which many of my patients are doing, you would know about that. Sex chromosome abnormalities do have certain risks like miscarriage or certain birth defects like heart problems or learning disabilities and chromosome abnormalities. So, right, like if you're not doing genetic testing and you're just doing ICSI, then this is a very small 0.8, less than 1% chance. But what people read is increased risk of miscarriage or birth defects or learning disabilities from ICSI and they don't understand the middle connecting ground is because a very, very small increased risk in a sex chromosome abnormality. But if you're using ICSI because you're doing genetic testing, then you would know about this. And again, the chance is super small. And one of the largest and most recent studies, which was association between ICSI and neurodevelopmental outcomes among offspring, which was published in 2021, looked at over 23,000 children enrolled for analysis. And it showed that use of ICSI was not associated with higher risk of neurodevelopmental outcomes in the offspring. So Personally, I don't see any change in outcomes from my patients who use ICSI versus what you would expect standard, and I think it's reasonable. I think it also is covering more basis. You're leaving less on the table. Many of us hate to see you have poor outcomes than you could have, and I promise we don't want to expose you to any higher risks. Last thing is that if your clinic always does ICSI, your embryologists are going to be very skilled at ICSI versus a clinic that maybe doesn't do it all the time. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. 
The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. Hi, Natalie. Thanks so much for your podcast. It's been so great uh, in our trying to conceive journey my question for you is whether you have any reason to recommend Clomid over Letrozole for a medicated IUI. I'm 35, unexplained infertility. Um, my husband and I have been trying to conceive for about a year, AMH of 1.2. My doctor has typically recommended Clomid for the medicated IUI, but I've heard a lot of negative things about Clomid and would like to think about asking him to switch that to Letrozole for our medicated IUI. Thanks for any thoughts you have. This is a really good question, and I actually do use both of them interchangeably, but for different patient populations. So I like to use Letrozole for ovulation induction in patients who have PCOS specifically. We do know that that is associated with higher live birth rates. When it comes to unexplained infertility, remember our goal is different than in traditional ovulation induction. OI for somebody who doesn't ovulate is to get you to ovulate. Ovulation induction is really super ovulation in somebody who has unexplained, meaning we are shooting for two to three eggs as our goal. For a lot of people or certain people, letrozole may not get that job done. For patients with PCOS, it might, especially at higher doses. But if you don't have PCOS, Clomid is actually my first line for unexplained, especially if you are older or you have a lower egg count because I can often get a more robust response from it. Yes, it does have some side effects in some people. It might cause you to have headaches or hot flashes, feel moody. The most concerning thing from a standpoint of your fertility is that it can thin out the uterine lining because Clomid is what we call a CIRM or a selective estrogen receptor modulator. Long fancy word, but it binds to your estrogen receptors and essentially your body thinks you don't have estrogen, therefore sends out a higher signal of FSH. What happens is that there are also estrogen receptors inside the uterus, and so Clomid can decrease estrogen at that level in certain people. Presumably, if you are doing Clomid for unexplained infertility, your clinic is going to monitor you, see how many follicles you have, measure the lining, use a trigger shot, do an IUI, etc. So I often will still try it first line for unexplained, especially in patients with normal to low ovarian reserve. If a patient ends up having a thin lining or feeling really terrible having bad side effects, then yes, I will switch it for a future cycle. But I agree with your doctor here, meaning for unexplained infertility, I would typically start with Clomid like you are being recommended to start in somebody who's got a low to normal AMH with unexplained. I just had a question. I had a frozen embryo transfer. I'm currently eight days post-transfer, and through pregnancy tests, I had a positive test in the evening and the next day on day seven, and then day eight, it was really light in the morning. I've always heard that pregnancy tests should be darker in the morning. Is it possible that some may be darker in the evening? 
Thanks for all your help. So pregnancy tests, and if they're positive or negative, can definitely be confusing. Few reminders, a pregnancy test is a urinary-based test that is measuring HCG in your urine. We know that HCG in the blood should approximately double every two days. So blood levels are always going to be more specific. Urine is going to differ largely based on how dilute the urine is. So in some people, I'll use me as an example, when I'm at work and I'm seeing a bunch of patients in the afternoon, I might actually have very concentrated urine because I may not be able to get up and go to the bathroom. And in the morning, it actually may be more dilute. Everybody is totally different. So yes, it can vary. Although in general, in most people, your morning urine is going to be rather concentrated unless you get up in the middle of the night to pee. And so it would be surprising if it was getting lighter. I would always recommend doing another test later and seeing what the progression pattern is, but that is concerning for me for a chemical pregnancy or a miscarriage, a pregnancy that started to implant, but now isn't implanting all the way. The big exception here and the other thing to think about is that we are doing so many more modified natural cycles or embryo transfers. People can do them as a fresh transfer after an IVF cycle. So when we talk about a frozen embryo transfer, you can have the embryo transferred and thawed in a programmed or a controlled cycle. This is where you give somebody estrogen and progesterone. In this, any HCG that you get after a transfer is from a pregnancy. If you have a fresh transfer or if you have a frozen embryo transfer that is a modified natural or a natural cycle, especially or specifically when you used a trigger shot. Trigger shots are HCG based. And so it takes time for that trigger to get out of your body. And in most people, that's around 10 days from the trigger. So if you were going to start testing super early in a case like that, you would see that this trigger shot gets out of your body and the test gets lighter. And then you would wait for it to turn back positive and get darker. This scenario, however, does make me concerned that it's a chemical loss. I hope that I'm wrong. I'll just say in general to answer the question, pregnancy tests can vary, especially within a 12-hour interval based on how concentrated the urine is because the hormones aren't really creeping up that high yet. That's why we, when we check blood, do it every two days so you know there's enough time to see that increase. Sending love. Hi, Dr. Crawford. I have a question about whether to explore a further diagnosis or a treatment plan. So for context, after a year of trying, my OBGYN discovered I have a blocked fallopian tube on one side with the other side being functional. After this diagnosis and ruling out any male factor issues, we began IUI while monitoring if I was ovulating from the side with the open tube. We have gone through now three rounds of IUI and I've ovulated from the open side each time. We didn't go straight to IVF due to insurance not covering it till later this year, but I'm now starting to wonder if there's more going on beyond a blocked tube. I'd be curious to hear if you have any recommendations on next steps. Thank you. So this is a really great question and brings up a point that I always talk about when we talk about tubal factor infertility. Because so often, people just view it as, oh, your tube's open-closed. But I am a whole-body kind of girl, so I really want to know, why is the tube blocked? What I mean by that is, do we know why this tube is blocked or do we not? It doesn't always mean we go on some huge hunt for the answer, but we at least do the mental exercise and we think about what it means. So, things that can block your fallopian tubes. History of pelvic infection, specifically gonorrhea, chlamydia. Chlamydia tends to be the big one there. 
It doesn't have to be a bad infection. That is this misnomer that, oh, I didn't have really bad chlamydia or I didn't get admitted to the hospital, so I'm sure my tubes are fine. Just having the infection in the past can ascend from the vaginal area of the cervix into the fallopian tubes relatively easily. Another thing could be history of abdominal surgery. So maybe you had an ovarian cyst, maybe you had some bowel surgery for a different reason. A big one could be an appendix, specifically a ruptured appendix, because that is so inflammatory that can cause scar tissue and block a fallopian tube. So if you said, oh, my right tube is blocked, but yeah, I had a ruptured appendix when I was five then I'm not that surprised that answers the question. It was an isolated one-time event, and I'm not as concerned about the other one. But what about, do you have painful periods or could you have endometriosis? Do you have other inflammatory or autoimmune conditions that could be contributing to this? Let's use endometriosis as an example. In this scenario, endometriosis has only affected the one tube that's blocked to the extent of which it is blocked. That doesn't mean the other tube is normal. It can be open, which is what we can test. We can test is it open or blocked. We are not testing if it's normal or abnormal. We're not testing if it functions. A tube is not just a pathway. It actually contracts and it helps the egg and the sperm meet. And it has to maintain an appropriate environment of which fertilization can happen and early embryo development. And if your body is super inflammatory or the tube no longer functions, you are going to find it difficult to get pregnant and still have tubal factor. In my patients who have concern for endometriosis based on pain or other symptoms, and we see a blocked tube, I am unconvinced that IUI is often going to work in that scenario. Meaning, what am I changing? Yeah, I'm getting the eggs and sperm closer together, but if the sperm is fine and you already ovulate, and they were already getting close together, so am I really overcoming anything if you have endo and you have that inflammation, and that's really the underlying issue? And then, is the other tube truly functional? So the real answer to the question depends on where you are and what you're going to do next. Are you considering surgery if you think it's endometriosis to excise and then go back and try OIIUI? Are you at the point where IVF makes sense anyway? This is not a question I can answer on a podcast, right? This depends on all your variables, your AMH, your age, your family goals, the whole picture of what your fertility looks like. But these are honest questions I would have with your doctor, and my answer would change based on independent, personalized scenarios. Hi, Dr. Crawford. I have a question about antibiotics for an HSG. In doing my recurrent pregnancy loss testing, they had me do a sauna histogram, um, and I took a round of, of antibiotics for it. My doctor also wants me to do an HSG to evaluate my fallopian tubes, but I'm just nervous about taking another round of antibiotics and really killing off all my gut health. So, I was wondering how important is it to take antibiotics? Is it totally necessary for an HSG? Thanks. And I really love your podcast. Okay. I totally understand this question because your gut is extremely important. And if you've been around, you know, I believe that. That being said, let me tell you this. I had a patient who came to me once who had an HSG and was not given antibiotics. It is standard of care to give antibiotics for an HSG, specifically an HSG, even more than a saline sonogram. And the reason why is we're really going from a non-sterile environment like the vagina and putting a catheter and pushing with a decent amount of force liquid through and through the fallopian tubes into that peritoneal cavity. So standard of care is to get antibiotics. If you don't, what is the risk? The real risk is that you could get pelvic inflammatory disease or a tubal abscess. And I had a patient who had a tubal abscess. 
She came to me after this scenario. So she had another doctor, had an HSG, didn't get antibiotics, got a terrible tuba ovarian abscess postoperatively, was admitted to the hospital, needed multiple rounds of like intense IV antibiotics, drainage from IR, eventual surgery. And then of course, she had to have IVF afterward because by that point, after all of that infection, her fallopian tubes no longer functioned. If we're going to look at the real guidelines, what we know in review is that there's a 50% chance of getting a post-HSG pelvic infection in patients who had chlamydia at the time of the procedure. So there's different ways to go this. You could screen everybody for chlamydia before you do it. That's one way, but you know if you're trying to come to the fertility clinic, that may be hard or they may not always do that. We actually do infectious disease testing on most of our patients at the initial visit. But just so that you know, that's part of it. If you have tubal dilation, then a review has shown that there's an 11% chance of getting pelvic inflammatory disease after an HSG. But if you don't have any tubal dilation, then the chance is about 1.5%. Because antibiotics in short courses are relatively easy, then the current recommendation is that if you are low risk, you should be screened for gonorrhea and chlamydia first and then treated if positive before the procedure. If you have no history of pelvic inflammatory disease and you've screened negative, you could do the HSG without antibiotics. So maybe you had a recent screening and you're negative and it's fine. If however, the HSG does demonstrate dilated tubes, you should get post prophylaxis with 100 twice a day for five days of doxycycline. That's pretty standard of care can substitute azithromycin if doxy is intolerable or you have an allergy. Now, because it's not always easy to do the screening and follow up and HSGs are so time sensitive, many people will make the standard of care five days of doxycycline after the HSG so that you don't run that risk of the patient who has dilated tubes that it gets missed or because a radiologist is reading it or the chlamydia screen hasn't come back before the procedure. So I think that it's reasonable to say, I really don't want to take antibiotics, but the recommendation would be that you are tested for gonorrhea, chlamydia, it is negative, and if the test ends up coming back with dilated tubes, the recommendation would be to take antibiotics at that time. And I would not mess with this. Remember, pelvic inflammatory disease, terrible tubal abscess, you're going to get so much more antibiotics, your gut's going to be destroyed. So ultimately, five days is typically not very much or a couple doses of azithromycin, depending on what your clinic likes. If you really don't want to take it, then I would just think about those screening parameters so that you have the lowest risk possible. All right, friends. Well, I hope you liked our fertility Q&A episode for this month. Again, these are absolutely some of my favorite episodes and I hope you guys enjoy listening to them. I always think you guys ask the absolute best questions. If you want to ask your own question, please call in and ask. The number to call is 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. You can also ask your fertility questions on Mondays on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Those questions will be answered on Instagram on your weekly podcast episodes at the very end in our For Fertility Sake segment and in the newsletter, nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. Last housekeeping item is that the Enhance Your Natural Fertility course and the IVF bundle are on sale right now because I'm closing the group, not forever, but for a while. A few things will be restructured and I just want to give these people who've been with us for the initial first year launch of this content all the attention they need. So you won't get it cheaper than this. If you're thinking about learning more about your body and your fertility, you can go to nataliecrawfordmd.com to learn more about those offerings. 
Overall, y'all, thank you so much for all of your support on this podcast. Over 3 million downloads, and I am just really humbled. Every single one of these questions, when you guys are thanking me and telling me how much it means to you and taking your own time to listen and call in and participate, y'all are absolutely the best. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And until next time, thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.